Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic, presented by BetMGM. I'm Max Boldman. With me, as always, is Prashant Iyer. And it's kind of like a little, uh, you know, mid-season nice check-in here, late-season check-in here. Ten games remaining in this season. The Red Wings about to get into a four-game series with the Dallas Stars. We're we're beyond the trade deadline. Joe Valeno's on the taxi squad. It's kind of a, a lot uh, kind of starting to bubble up here as we get into the final three weeks of the regular season. Yeah, I think it's, a, you know, it's finally some of the things that people were hoping to see this year with some of the younger guys like Valeno with the SHL season uh, over for him, uh, being able to come back over and, you know, potentially get into an NHL game in the near future. And then, you know, the Wings had a nice little three-game uh, win streak that unfortunately came to a close there against Chicago. But Ultimately, you're starting to see kind of those, you know, signs of progress that I think everyone was hoping to get out of this season. So as you hit the final 10 games here, um, a lot of excitement, I think, still uh, still around the team. Uh, we are yet again, as has become habit, recording three hours before a game starts. And so uh, we are going to break out of that eventually. But it was just the way that all the, the newsy topics fell that uh, it, it was just the only way that made sense this week for us to do this. We'll, we'll be back. Our next episode will be uh, Wednesday night. Uh, so that one, hopefully, will have a little bit longer shelf life. We're talking about actual hockey. We won't belabor it too much um, other than to kind of wrap up the Red Wings' most recent four-game stretch. They were on a little three-game win streak for a minute there that I think certainly took me by surprise. I don't know what you thought about it, but it comes uh, crashing down in a 4-0 loss to the Blackhawks over the weekend. Yeah, I mean, the, the three-game win streak was certainly surprising, most notably because they beat Carolina twice, and I think that was uh, maybe a pretty unexpected uh, outcome, at least uh, when you compare how the two teams have played over the course of the season. Um, but then being able to beat Chicago that first time, obviously it all comes crashing back down. I think uh, that was the kind of dud game that has unfortunately been mixed into uh, some of the highs and lows uh, for the season, those have been kind of a classic example of the lows where it's pretty clear early on the Wings don't have it and they're not going to find that extra gear. Um, I thought it was a relatively easy night for Malcolm Subban. It was a relatively easy, easy night for me as I fell asleep halfway through the game <laughs> and had to rewatch it later. So, uh, you know, everything did come crashing back down. Um, but, you know, as it stands, we're, we're 10 games away. And, you know, Max, I was thinking about where you and I projected this team to be uh, you know, at the beginning of the season, they're they're on pace to to better both of our predictions, uh, assuming they can do better than three, six, and one the rest of the way. I don't know if they can do better than three, six, and one the rest of the way. That's uh, so that's so that's the fun part, right? If they go exactly three, six, and one, they end up nineteen thirty and seven, which was uh when I went and looked back, that was the record I had for them. You what had them with I about twenty. I think you had twenty one wins. Uh, I don't remember the number of losses, but you had them with four more points than I did. So. I think I had, a, I, I know I had them at forty-seven points. I just wasn't yeah. sure how how they got yeah. there in, in my accounting for. I did take, uh, you know, I I forget who I told. I told someone else that they would win nineteen games. So I, I need a little more consistency in my preseason pred- predictions. But I stand by the one I put in print. I just want want to make sure everyone knows. I stand by the one I put in print. That one. Do you stand by the other predictions that were accompanying that? I was that about one to say print? that one is going to be my closest. <laughs> being right even if i'm wrong by two or three wins in the end of it i mean it's better than the thomas grace there's so many dude every one of those is going to be wrong every one of them but like i'm right there with you so i think that should be stated and not only are we both going to be very very like not we not only are all the predictions wrong they're atrociously wrong like not even in the ballpark of close 
uh, I mean, we had Thomas Grice's taking over as the main goaltender and and how people kind of shutter their eyes when he's taking over the net. So, oh man, what a year. Well, it's it's so funny because it's like we got every little we got every every way that they were going to get to this record wrong, but then we got the record right about right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, basically we looked at a lot of different things, you know, Anthony Mantha bounce back season from a goal scoring standpoint, Thomas Grice taking over in the net, but we still both said they were going to end up being about Break, 45 to 47 players, points. Uh, Vladislav Domestikov, or fan yeah. favorite Vladislav Domestikov. I, yeah. Troy Stetcher was right there. Uh, breakout defenseman John Merrill. Troy Stetcher was right there. Although I still think John Merrill had a great year, but I just thought it was going to be uh, you know, b- at both ends of the ice. I think I predicted a career scoring year for him. And in hindsight, predicting a career scoring year for anyone on the 2021 Red Wings was signing my own death certificate uh, before the games even started. Yeah, I mean, I did at least appreciate you calling attention to the fact that they are scoring better than last season. You yeah, know, this year they're two point two two goals and still per game, last, and still dead last. <laughs> Asking for a career scoring season, albeit I think Merrill's career high was like fourteen points. It was not like unreasonable. That? That's the thing is, I, I was predicting to have like sixteen points, and I realized it was a higher rate. But when I made that prediction, he was quarterbacking like power play two. Like it just yeah. felt it felt plausible. It, it you know for a guy that just had not yeah I mean his career high was 15 points in 2018 right. 2019 <laughs> so you were just asking him to be better than that and and no we didn't we With didn't get there he got time. to five right he got to five points so he got a third of the way there I guess he was good though so I'm just gonna kind of pretend yeah. like I said John Merrill will be good and then I got it right <laughs> yeah so basically the moral of the story is you and I know how to pick defensemen as I think I said Stetcher and you said Merrill but we can't really do anything else. That's right. That's right. And uh, right. that would make us kind of different based on uh, some of your recent uh, prognosticating than NHL teams knowing how to pick defensemen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at least looking at the draft, and, and we'll certainly talk about the draft with Bob McKenzie's uh, top 100 coming out uh, on, on this lovely Monday. I mean, NHL teams certainly haven't been able to reliably pick defensemen uh, at the top of the draft as compared to forwards. So maybe, Max, you and I just need to take over the scouting staff for these guys. Well, uh, I did just uh, get a goalie prediction wrong. So I think that fits in nicely into your narrative, too, about predicting goalies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, no one can predict goalies, so I think we fit right in. There we go. I mean, okay, you, you already brought up the Bob McKenzie. We're going to get there anyway. Let's just go there right now. It is obviously kind of a uh, always a really good checkpoint because he, he does the polls where he averages uh, what scouts around the league think of players. And what it really is is a really good uh, rough approximation for more so than than how kind of the the um, public community ranks these players, which I think we get a pretty good grasp for throughout the year. But it's a snapshot into how some of the NHL community rank these players. And it usually comes out pretty close to, to the ranges that most of these players get picked in. Yeah, I mean... McKenzie is very much spot on. I, I've taken actually a, an interest in evaluating just how spot on he tends to be. Uh, if you go and, and look at his uh, prognostication for 2015 to 2019, you take his final rankings and match them up to where the players actually were drafted for first round picks. His mean error that he makes is about four is about five picks. So he's usually plus or minus five for a player that he puts in the first round, which is absolutely insane, including some years where he gets nearly the entire top 10. Uh, you know, so it's it's just incredible to see how well connected he is when he goes to put together that list and, and is able to demonstrate, um, 
you know, just his his proficiency with this prognostication. I mean, if you go back and and look at last season, his biggest miss in the top 15 was Cole Perfetti, who he had at five. And I believe Perfetti ended up going at 10. And so that was ultimately the biggest miss he had in the top 15. Otherwise, he was spot on with Lafreniere. He was, uh, you know, a couple spots off on on the rest of the guys in the top 10 there. Um, you know, Askarov, he called on the money. Lundell, he called on the money. So this list matters when you're trying to evaluate who's going to be available around what kind of drafts, draft slot. Yeah, and usually the, the the takeaway that you want to have is if you're saying, you know, especially as we're going to have this conversation about the Red Wings and their picks in this draft, if you're saying, could this guy fall? Um, the answer is probably not if they're in the top 20 to 23 of this round. He's probably not going to fall to the Red Wings, depending on where the Capitals pick falls. But you expect that's probably going to be around 27 to 29 somewhere. Um, so, and then the Red Wings first rounder, obviously being in the low thirties, maybe mid thirties at this point. Um, so that's kind of what you're looking at. And so it, it does give you a nice approximation for, for who's realistically, um, trending toward being on the board. There is more time. There's still a U18 world championship that can, that can, uh, you know, do some rearranging and do a lot of this. Um, but with that said, uh, you you put out kind of you know those little uh, future considerations I think does the simulator and you yeah. tweeted out a screen grab the other day of yours and I told you that there was no shot that uh, some of those names were going to be on the board where you were getting them. Oops. <laughs> and and sure enough, you know half the guys there are actually right around the the slot that the FC simulator uh, you know had them going with. So maybe uh, the FC rankings are actually pretty close to Bob's rankings to allow that to happen or just kind of a nice random luck uh, with the, with kind of how that simulation ended up working. But, you know, I thought, you know, at least for today, I think maybe a reasonable idea would be to talk about, you know, some of the candidates who might be in that six to 10 range where the Red Wings seem to be, yep. you know, picking and then maybe talking about who might be in that, you know, 26 to, to 32 range where the capital pick is likely to land. So, I guess, Max, based off of, uh, you know, Bob's list, it looks like half your Michigan crew is not going to be around in that six to 10 range. But are there any other names that jump out to you as ones to pay attention to? Yeah. So I guess just to kind of establish why we're doing the six to 10, I mean, at this point, the Red Wings by points percentage um, come up fifth from the bottom uh, in the NHL. And so the, the because it is an expansion draft year, um, Seattle is going to get the third best odds. So really they have the sixth best odds as things stand. They can drop up to two spots as currently positioned. Their most likely outcome would be to pick seventh. And there would be a 42% chance of that. There would be a 34% chance that they would pick sixth an eight percent, eight and a half percent chance. They would pick eighth, a seven and a half percent chance to pick first and a 7.8% chance to pick second. So that is how that shakes out for them. And given those numbers, we should pretty strongly, uh, you know, project at this moment in time, although the season's not over, they could actually go lower if they beat up on Columbus in these few games coming up here. Um, we should project sixth or seventh as we're starting to, to kind of really get into the prep work, which I know a lot of people are probably not going to be too happy to hear. I mean, the Red Wings tend to pick sixth every single year, right? Why should this year be any different? But you know, you're, you're absolutely right, Max. And I think, honestly, the key is going to be this Columbus series because Columbus has absolutely fallen off a cliff. You know, a lot of people had maybe pegged them to contend for the playoffs. Now, feasibly, Detroit can pass them. 
in terms of standing positions and actually end up seventh in the division, which was something that we didn't think was uh, going to be possible, particularly at the beginning of the season. And so, you know, if Detroit ends up passing Columbus, that's a couple more spots that they can drop. And so that's why, again, you kind of want to be in a scenario where you're erring on the side of caution and not saying, all right, let's look at the top five guys and just expect them to slide here. Um, I think you're probably safer entering with maybe the six to 10 group on your board, given how Detroit's playing the games they've got remaining and what the most likely pick's going to be. Yes. So to me, I, I know that there's a kind of an opinion out here that this is a not that not a draft that it's hugely important to be picking in the top four or five in. I don't really agree with that. I think it's the kind of draft that um, it, the difference between picking like third or fourth and first or second isn't that great, but I still think there is kind of a tier cutoff just based on what I know. And I am not Corey Pronman. I am not Scott Wheeler. Uh, I do not have that, you know, on the firmest of confidence. But, you know, if I, if it were me, I would want to be probably picking no later than third. Obviously, that's probably not happening happening for the Red Wings here unless they win the lottery. Um, so it's probably not happening. So um, to me, like the, the the three that I would be targeting above the others would be Owen Power, Matt Beniers, and Dylan Genther. Uh, and then slightly beyond that, I think you would get into Luke Hughes, uh, William Eklund, Kent Johnson, and Brant Clark. When you get toward the back half of that that next tier, that's where it gets pretty interesting to me. That's where the Red Wings are probably going to be picking. Um, Simon Edvinson, the Swedish defenseman out of Ferlunda, and we cannot discount the Ferlunda ties at this point uh, with how many the Red Wings have taken out of there in the last couple of drafts. Um, he was actually at number three on Bob McKenzie's list. Tied for second or was he three? Tied for second on the official publicly posted list, but I think if you watch the show, they listed him third. Okay, so um, that's the that was a surprise entry into that top group of seven or eight there for me. Um, and I probably need to know more about Simon Evanson. I haven't been able to watch a ton of him. Um, but you know, the, he is obviously a couple of things that, that teams really like is, is a big skilled mobile defenseman. Yeah. I mean, he's a six foot four defenseman who, you know, is, has really all the tools you would want in a defenseman, uh, you know, very skilled, good skater, relatively mobile, um, very, very willing to join the rush. Um, you know, I think maybe the biggest knock on him right now is uh, he's a little too much of do it yourself uh, kind of deals and can skate himself into trouble or he can kind of stick handle the puck into dangerous areas, force coverage behind him. Uh, I think a little bit of work will have to be done on his decision making and kind of picking his spots a little bit better while making sure you don't necessarily uh, lose that kind of drive to join the rush. But uh, ultimately, you don't find a lot of really strong six foot four skaters that have solid puck handling skills. Um, you know, it was a big reason why the Wings swung on William Wallander last year was he had a lot of those same kind of tools, uh, but definitely needed work on his defensive zone coverage. And I think I've, Edmondson's maybe a little bit better version of that. Uh, so it's probably still a little bit more of a project, but definitely has all the tools you want. To me, the, the names that jump out if the Red Wings are indeed picking six, seven, or eight uh, are Eklund, Johnson, and Brant Clark. And if Luke Hughes is still there, add him to the mix. I, I just I would think he probably doesn't get out of the top five with his skating. Um, Brant Clark is is kind of the next defenseman. I know this has been kind of for a lot of people the defenseman draft, and certainly seeing four defensemen in uh, McKenzie's top six 
reinforces that. Uh, Clark is the player who is listed at number six, and so I think you, you could make a best player available argument on that front. He's kind of, he, you know, he, he's the defenseman that you're going to like to watch. He makes nice plays with the puck. He's not the prettiest skater, um, but in terms of like a future power play quarterback, I mean, he's probably your guy uh, if, if that's the thing you want out of this draft. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a great kind of summary of Brant Clark is he's just a guy who I think makes good decisions with the puck. And, you know, this year has been really, really odd because a lot of people were expecting to be able to see him play in the Ontario Hockey League. Obviously, they never got off the ground. So then he jumps, you know, across the Atlantic, heads over to Slovakia, which is a league that's just not watched, I should say, uh, maybe as much as um, others, um, publicly speaking. And so, you know, taking, he maybe has flown a little bit under the radar, but if you kind of dig into the numbers for him, uh, over in Slovakia, I mean, he's played, you know, nearly 20 minutes a night. Uh, he's played, uh, power play minutes for them. Um, and he's played on a pretty poor team. You know, I was digging into some of their even strength numbers and that, uh, the team he plays on over in Slovakia had a even strength goals for percentage of 39%, um, whereas Brant Clark was actually sitting up at 57%. Uh, and so when you subtract Clark's uh, numbers actually from the team numbers, he basically ends up plus 20% relative to his team. So he's certainly a guy that's having uh, a great impact at even strength um, You know, for, for a team that's not that talented, not that good. So I think you have to be somewhat excited about what he's able to do in a pro league right now. Absolutely. And that's something that the Red Wings have, have seen uh, in, you know, in, in Moritz Sider is that, you know, good performance at a young age in pro leagues tends to be a really promising sign. Lucas Raymond, good performance as a young player in pro leagues, promising sign. Um, and, and you got some boom potential there too with, with Brant Clark. So um, that's certainly a name that would be very high at, at that point uh, on the board for for me at least. Uh, Kent Johnson, supremely skilled player for Michigan. I think most of you probably are familiar enough with Kent Johnson because those Michigan guys are some of the only ones who have gotten a full season in. Um, obviously they're playing right up the road. No one could actually get into Yoast really to see them. I got in there one time to see them. Uh, and they, they are all very fun to watch. I mean, you've heard us probably talk about Beniers a little more. I think he's the true center of that group. Um, but, but Kent has real upside. I mean, the skill is, uh, really impressive. Yeah. I think a lot of people kind of equate him maybe to a, uh, a Trevor Zegris type, not necessarily the same, uh, level of skill, but, similar kind of playmaking player, you know, a Patrick Kane-esque type player. Uh, I don't think he comes anywhere near the ceiling of either of those guys, uh, but definitely a, a high upside player if he can put all the tools together, if he can continue to find those soft areas of ice, if he can continue to make those plays at the next level. I think he's a guy with a lot of upside for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it tells you something that, you know, we really liked uh, Beniers, and we're talking about him as a as a potential and maybe an arguably should be top three pick here. Kent Johnson slightly outscored him this year. Yeah, and I think that comes down to maybe Beniers' game being a little bit better rounded. Beniers kind of projecting to be a center at the yes. the next level, whereas Johnson, even though played center, is likely going to be a winger at the next level. I don't think he'll be able to 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 stick at center. But so that just kind of goes to show you. Uh, you know, some of the, the differences between those two guys out of Michigan. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And then there's William Eklund, who I think people are probably pretty familiar with just because Red Wings fans uh, have been tuning in frequently to, to the SHL or at least very aware of what's going on in the SHL. Uh, William Eklund uh, scored at a comparable level to Lucas Raymond this year, despite being one draft class behind. So if we're going to talk about Lucas Raymond as one of the better forward prospects outside the NHL, uh, I think it's only fair that William Eklund be in that same conversation. Yeah. I mean, William Eklund, you know, I was a little surprised to see him sit here at seven. And I think he may end up being one of the more uh, difficult players to to assess um, for uh, a lot of these scouting organizations. You know, Bobby Max got him here at seven. I mean, Elite Prospects has him at one. McKean's has him at 10. Uh, it's kind of all over the place. But I think if you're looking at Eklund, he's an extraordinarily smart hockey player who play, who really plays kind of all parts of the, the game well. I think if you're looking for a guy who has the highest potential at being, you know, the highest level of player or highest level of forward in this draft. He's right there with Dylan Ginther, in my opinion. I think he's arguably, you know, the the, the most talented player. He's a two-way threat, uh, excellent protection with the puck, um, you know, great work ethic. I think he would complement a guy like Lucas Raymond perfectly, uh, you know, there, I think maybe the, again, the knock that tends to be a really on all these guys is, you know, having some question marks about his skating, but at the end of the day, um, I think he's an outstanding player. Maybe he slips a little bit because he is a shade under five foot 10. Um, you know, maybe he slips a little bit because even though he can, he, he can play center, maybe there's a debate about whether he's going to be a winger or a center. I think a lot of people are thinking maybe winger at this point, but nonetheless, I think he's an extraordinarily talented hockey player. Yeah, and one that I think you you would do well to pick. Like the team that gets him, I don't think is it has to be too worried about bust potential given what he's already proven at the pro level. I mean, to me that's like that there's a degree of of safety and comfort there, and yet it also implies real ceiling to have produced at that level already. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, if you're trying to contrast his counting stats to what you saw from like Lucas Raymond last year, I think take note that William Eklund got minutes, a yeah. lot more minutes yeah. uh, than, than uh, Lucas Raymond got last season. You know, he's playing close to 16 minutes a night uh, while Raymond was maybe about 10 minutes a night in his draft year. So certainly the counting stats are going to look much better. But I mean, to be a, a, a U18 player in the SHL scoring as well as he did at even strength, uh, is very, very impressive and something not a lot of guys have really done. Uh, so to me, he's a he's definitely an attractive player for the Red Wings if he's there at seven. But even if you take that out, uh, if you take out the, you know, Lucas Raymond's ice time difference in his draft year compared to Eklund, like they're playing about the same amount of minutes this year. And he's and Eklund's a little bit younger. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Eklund's certainly a little younger. I think importantly, you know, we should, give the caveat that Furlund is a very low scoring hockey team similar to Detroit. And so again, you're just not going to have a lot of points that go around because the team doesn't score that much. But, uh, so whereas Eklund's playing on Jurgarden and you think he played with, uh, Holtz at times. So you're going to get some more points in in playing a little bit more of an up-tempo, 
pace there. But but either way, again, very impressive to see this from Eklund. He's been consistent throughout the whole season. Uh, you know, so I I personally think he's a he's a top three talent in the draft and arguably the safest bet to be a, a top six forward in the draft, albeit. Uh, there are guys with maybe a little bit higher ceiling like Dylan Ginther. Yeah, and, and I would put Owen Power. Like Owen Power is another guy who I think combines ceiling and upside really well. Like I, I think the floor of, of a guy who is that size, can move that way, has put up the points that he already has at the NCAA level is really impressive. It's why I agree with him being ranked number one. Um, I also think there is tremendous ceiling because of the toolkit there that like he to, that to me is justifies the number one ranking is the blend of of ceiling and, flo- and floor for him. Um, and, and that what 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 is was what amazes me about, you know, in power. Um, but I agree, like if you get to the to the five, six, seven spot in this draft and you want to know that you're getting someone who's probably going to project to play in the top half of your lineup someday, you know, Willie Mecklen might be your guy. Yeah. And so that's where, uh, again, not a bad consolation prize. I think it's important to temper, you know, your expectations to a certain degree in that, you know, maybe most likely scenario is maybe a second line winger, uh, you know, third line winger that you get out of this. But uh, definitely has the you should feel relatively comfortable knowing that he should hit at least that with potentially some more upside. Yeah, I mean, none of these guys are guarantees to be top half of the lineup players. That is the the great uh, the great acceptance that that we all have to come to is that uh, even a great high pick, even a, even a, a pretty good top ten pick, is not a guarantee uh, to, to be a top line or even top half of the lineup player. Um, it, it's just the way that it that historically that's worked out. Yeah, and, and again, we've talked about it time and time again. The talent, the overall ceiling of this talent. Uh, of the talent level of this class is, you know, a fair bit lower than where we were last year. I think, you know, I've can I debate people, you on that? You can. I, it's not that I want to debate. I mean, the top end for sure. Like Lafreniere, Byfield, Stutzla are are going one in this class. All three yeah. of them are. But like, do you really think that these guys wouldn't challenge or or pass like Raymond Sanderson, Drysdale at at you know in that four four five range? At, you know, pretty consistently. I, I don't. Like I said, I think if I were drafting the this group against the 2020 class, um, you know, if I'm looking at the top center, Matty Beneers right now, is he better than Anton Lundell was last year? I think so. I don't. I think it's actually, or at the very least, you're having a solid debate about it, right? I don't, I don't I think mean, he's head and shoulders better than Anton Lundell, and especially with what we've seen Lundell do this season. You know, last year, remember, he had the ACL injury or the knee injury. But we didn't see that at the time of the draft. Like there are always going to be guys that pop in the in the year after that. You know what I mean? I'm saying like what I thought of Lindell before the draft last year, and maybe I was wrong about him, but like you know I think you can argue Lindell should have gone higher, of course. But like I think you have to evaluate the draft classes what you thought of him at the time of the draft. Uh, yeah, I think that's fair. You know, I think the the downside to Lindell was people missed a large chunk of his season. They mm-hmm. missed him at the World Juniors because of that knee injury, so he didn't get to see a lot of the stuff. But you know, even then. Uh, if you're just taking Matty Beniers as the top center in this draft, is he better than Quentin Byfield? No. Is he better than Marco Rossi? No. Is he better than Cole Perfetti? I think he's better no. than Rossi. Oh, man. Oh, man. We're going to have to throw down over here. <laughs> it's not even close, man. Uh, but, okay, so maybe if you're – I think I think you got to take your, your U of M glasses off, Max. <laughs> well, let's not there. talk about him. I mean, <laughs> you're, you're focusing on the center. Like, Dylan Genther is the, is the top winger in this draft. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, he's at least comparable to, to Raymond Holtz. I forget who else went high. Perfetti, at least comparable to those guys. I personally don't see it there. I don't, I think the first winger you're talking about him being comparable to comes after Alex Holtz. Because again, I mean, remember back to last season, the conversations we were having about Holtz. We said if you dropped him in the CHL, he would score yeah. 70. I mean, that's what we were talking about with Holtz because that's how good of a sniper he is. Um, Raymond is just a supremely talented player on an offensively strapped team, and he played 10 minutes a night. So you didn't, again, get the counting totals that you're getting from Dylan Genther playing 23 minutes a night for the WHL's best team uh, with the Edmonton Oil Kings. I think there's a huge difference in that context there that definitely makes this a challenging comparison. But to me, there's no question about it. The first winger I'm comparing Genther to is Jack Quinn in terms of order off the board. Like I have Stutzla, Lafreniere, Raymond, and Holtz all well ahead of of Genther, at least evaluating up to right now. Okay. And then on the defensive end, uh, Owen Power versus Sanderson and Drysdale, the first two defensemen taken, I think I'm taking Owen Power over them. I think that's a reasonable, I think this is a more reasonable conversation here because neither Drysdale or Sanderson truly blew me away. I do think... um, And you thought they were picked a little high too at the time. I I also thought they were picked a little high partly due to the the position they play and not really them, uh, you know, at all. It's it's mostly just that position is so difficult to project. But already you're seeing Jamie Drysdale playing for the Anaheim Ducks, right? I mean, he's getting minutes in his D, you know, first year out, D plus one year. So you know, maybe he's he's a better player than we thought. And he had a lot of the tools. He was a great skater, great power play quarterback. Um, so I think at the very least, you're saying Owen Power's on the same level as him. I could hear the argument for, for Power being better than him. I wasn't a huge fan of Sanderson at all last season. I think at this point, I'll still kind of maintain I'd like to see more from him yeah. before I can feel confident in that pick at five. But yeah, I think the defenseman is where you can make that argument. But from a forward talent standpoint, I still think you're you're dropping into the teens here if you were to drop those forwards there. It's a good point about the trying to, you know, place the scoring of Raymond and Holtz uh, in, into the junior leagues. And it's something I probably need to remember to do more often. I'm not certainly not doubting that like a Marco Rossi would score more um, than I think Matt Beneers would score. Um, I just think, you know, and, and Rossi had a complete game. I'm not going to dispute that. Uh, I think maybe I'm a little more positive that, that Benier sticks at center and maybe that's influencing things a little bit for me. Um, I'm, you know, maybe a little more confident in, uh, in how he's going to hold up, you know, translating his game. But, you know, I, I think, I think reasonable minds could disagree on that one. I'm not going to come down so hard line. It's just like, I would, if you could give me the choice right now, if I could add one of them to my farm system and my mythical hockey team, I think I would lean toward Beniers, but I might be wrong in doing that. I don't know. Yeah. Again, this is all academic to the sense like I can't say I'm right and I can't say you're wrong. Yeah. I, I think, you know, from my opinion, based on just everything I had looked at last year and everything I've looked at this year thus far, I, I do have a hard time placing the, the forward crop in particular um, ahead of the for any really a lot any of the guys that went in the top 10 last year um that's the challenge it's just to me like when i look at the at the body of you know those that top tier of six or seven to me if we if we grant that yes lafreniere stutzel byfield one two three uh over both of them but if i compare you know kind of one through seven this year to four through eight or four through nine last year i think you can have some good debates and it's why i think you know, it's why I think it's a little 
you know, more, um, it's more of a conversation than maybe I had, um, it, it, maybe I felt like people were kind of giving it credit for, but I, I don't know. I might be wrong about it. I think, I mean, it's absolutely worth having the discussion. Um, you know, I think one of the areas that maybe we can do to, to kind of help out in thinking about this is if you just start with, you know, Corey's, um, tiers, right? So Corey last year, he always puts the prospects in a tier. So if you go back and look at the 2020 draft, he's got Lafreniere in his own bucket, as special NHL prospect. Then he's got Byfield in special slash elite. Then he's got Stutzla in elite slash high end Raymond in elite slash high end Perfetti in elite slash high end Holtz in high end Drysdale in high end Askarov in high end Rossi in high end. So high and end then, translates to first line. So what? How many? Where does he start? I think Genther's probably high end. So he's got then. Then he has a high end slash very good bubble um, of that's this, first line slash second line, and that's Connor Zary, and that's where he starts there, at, and that's at um, ten. And so right. he's got nine guys ranked at least. It's definitely a, it's definitely a better draft. That that was a better draft. I'm yeah. not disputing that. But okay, that, I mean that that is a pretty good illustration. I, I, that's at least what helps me is if yeah. you just project out the tiers and maybe Corey lays it out probably better than other people do. Um, but just using those tiers can give you some idea about where maybe these guys would slot in in prior drafts. And again, that discussion is all for academic purposes because you're never combining these two drafts and uh, you're always going to have some sort of bias in favor of the previous draft, given that you have more information on those guys uh, relative to the, the current draft. But all that being said, I, I'm not as high on this forward crop uh, compared to last year's. I do think they slot a little bit lower from a ceiling perspective, um, but it's a fun discussion to have, I think. Yeah, definitely. Uh, if I give you the sixth pick and put you on the spot and I told you off the board are Power, Hughes, Beneers, uh, Genther, and Eklund, who are you taking? This is where you're going to make me break all my principles and have to draft Brent Clark at six after I just said that I don't like taking defensemen, you know, as high here. But if you're taking Power, Genther, Beneers, Hughes, and Eklund off the board, I think now at this point, if you use Bob's list, you're working with, you know, Brent Clark at six. You've got Edvinson at, uh, you know, tied for second. Again, I've, for the reasons mentioned previously, uh, I think he's a little bit more of a project and someone I'm not as confident on. I'd rather swing on a guy like Grant Clark, who's showing uh, to be relatively competent at, in a solid men's league and playing quite well. Um, you know, Kent Johnson, Chaz Lucius, those are guys you can think about. Fabian Lysel is another guy that I would think about, although, um, you know, as a winger who has struggled in two different scenarios here, you may have a little bit more reservations, even though all the talent is there to do the things. Um, so that's why I probably lean Brant Clark. Would it give you even a moment of pause to draft another right shot defenseman there when arguably the two best defensemen, I mean, I would say the two best defensemen the Red Wings have in the system right now play on the right side in Sider and Hironik? It would absolutely not give me a moment of pause. I do not believe in drafting for positional need or handedness because, you know, you can make the argument that the Red Wings' best move would be to trade Philip Hironik, similar, follow the same line as Anthony Mantha, you bring a Brant Clark in and you hope Auntie Tuamista works out or uh, and, and and you you deal Hironic and deal with that problem later. Um, but to me, there's no there's no issue here. You can have an embarrassment of riches. Like you look at Colorado right now, that in that entire decor should win the Norris. 
Um, and they still have guys that that aren't even slotting into the lineup. And that's because at the time of the draft, you have no guarantee that someone's going to pan out the way that they do. You know, I don't think anyone thought Sider was going to go the way that he did. I don't think anyone thought Philip Aronik coming from the second round was going to go the way that he did. And same thing, you know, you can take Brant Clark here at six, conf- or, you know, hopeful that it goes the way you want it to, but you can't have that level of confidence, uh, in my opinion, that everything's going to swing in your favor. I am also of the mind that playing Philip Peronik on his offside would not be a problem. I mean, one of one of his best assets is his one-timer, and you're putting him full-time on his one-timer side. That, to me, does not seem like a bad thing. I mean, to be fair, I don't want him shooting the puck any more than he already does. <laughs> <laughs> He's so, had a lot of shin pads this year. There's no I, doubt I about do it. not want to invite that. But, I mean, you know, again, the whole thing he about He has a good shot. It's, it is a good shot. I mean, he does not get it through enough. That's right. He doesn't get it through enough, and he does, and he takes too many of them from low danger situations for my liking. But uh, you know, I digress. The whole point about not playing guys on their their off swing, I think, sometimes gets a little bit overstated. Now, obviously, for defensemen, there is the added advantage of being on your strong side to keep pucks in at the blue line, be able to knock down passes when uh, you know forwards are trying to chip the puck in past you. Um, but there are plenty of examples of defensemen who have been able to play very well on their offside and asking Philip Peronik to be the guy to flip over, I don't think would be a bad thing. Yeah. All right. Uh, I don't think I disagree with you about Brant Clark. I, I think, uh, you know, the, the combination there of what he's proven in a pro league, um, what the kind of skill set suggests about what he could become. Uh, I think that that's a, a pretty, that blends, you know, upside and, and what you've already seen against men pretty well in, in a way that I think um, that that should give you pretty good confidence in a pick like that. Yeah, especially when you're talking about potentially his biggest holdup being skating, you know, get him in with a skating coach, make that a part of his development plan. And you're potentially swinging on a guy who has top two upside. Uh, if you can get all the if all the breaks fall your way. Now, you don't want to think like that, but uh, he's also got arguably the second highest floor for a defenseman behind power. Kenzie had him listed at 6'2". That's the biggest I've seen him listed at, too. I think that's can only make you feel better. Yeah, 6'2", 185, which should make you feel pretty good about, you know, taking a guy like that. Uh, Luke Hughes, also 6'2". He skates beautifully. Um, and I think you, you got a lot of room for upside there. But I think I took him off the board when, when I asked you to pick, so. You you did. You You unfortunately made him the last one off the board there. All right, there you go. Uh, all right. Anything else on, on kind of this range of picks before we move into the Capitals pick? No, I think uh, I'll just go ahead and state it. Do not s- spend your pick on on Jesper Wallstedt, uh, yeah. in my opinion. I think there's too many reasonable uh, forwards and defensemen here to take a swing on a guy like Wallstedt. As good as he is, as good as the mechanics are, uh, he's still going to be some time away. He's cooled off after that really, really hot start. Um, and I think there's going to be some options later in the draft. Did you have a selfie cam on when you saw two goalies in the top 15 of this list? I did not. Um, you know, I actually opened this list at work and saw it and I got, I had a, maybe a little skip of a heartbeat there, but <laughs> good place uh, to have it we, at a hospital. It, right. I mean, I'm in the cardiac intensive care unit. That's the best place to probably have that happen, but we quickly moved past it. All right. That's good. All right. So let's move in, uh, right now where the capitals odds would leave them is really late. Uh, they have been playing well of late, so that is the 29th pick. I think it would actually be the 28th selection because you got to factor in the forfeited Coyotes pick. So 
if we take, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll grant you from like 24 on, um, just to account for the like five pick variants that, uh, we talked about there. So, uh, I'll give you anyone from Francesco Pinelli on in this list. Uh, give me two or three names that you would really be closely eyeing at, at let's say, somewhere between 24 and 31. Yeah, I mean, taking a look through Bob's list, I think the two names that jump out to me are, again, some some Swedes. The first one is Oscar Olison. He's a right winger. If you want to watch someone skate, watch Olison skate. This guy is an absolute uh, machine can fly up and down the ice. I mean, he'd be a lot of fun to have, uh, you know, playing in Detroit. I do think sometimes uh, he has potential to skate himself into issues or he he can sometimes overcommit, but you can't deny that this kid's a really, really talented winger um, and a guy that the wings cer- simply don't have. I mean, if you look at right wing uh, for Detroit, uh, they could very much use a couple of guys here. Uh, so I would love to see him. Uh, as a potential pick. And then the other guy you have to look at is Simon Robertson. And Simon, you know, similar uh, to to Olison, he's another outstanding uh, winger that Detroit would do well to to be able to land. I think he's got a lot of uh, high IQ qualities about him. He's a bit all over the board. Um, He's got a great shot. Um, You know, he's great work ethic. Uh, Just can't say enough good things about him. You know, the other nice thing that works in his favor is he's a later birthday and a February uh, 03 birthday. So potentially a little bit more development to come there. But either of those two um, are, are the names that jump out to me at, at in that range. There's a lot of people uh, who this is a player who I haven't watched, but there's a lot of people online to talk about uh, this Brennan Othman, who I think played for Flint in the OHL. And now he's in Switzerland. Is he on your radar at all? Yeah, I mean, he's a guy that I don't think would last to this spot. I mean, okay. Othman is a – I think I've seen some people have him as high as 18 uh, in, in their mocks. Uh, other people have been a little bit lower on him. You know, for example, I don't think Corey had him in his most recent top uh, 33 or 34 that he ranked. So, you know, potentially there is a little bit of a jury is out here. But I think, again, another supremely talented player that – the wings would be able to land here. I don't know if he's going to be there though. I think I would be surprised if he does last this long. Uh, Mackie Samuskevich from the Chicago steel in the USHL, a player I saw at the all America game a couple weeks back, um, had a really good game, really skilled player. Uh, is he someone who you would consider? Yeah. I mean, he's another guy that you absolutely should consider here. He's, uh, you know, I guess Max in your favor is committed to Michigan for next season. So that's right. That's all I care to, about. That I mean, that's what it seems to be you're picking on here. But yeah, I mean, a point per game uh, player for the Chicago Steel. I think it's important to remember Chicago is an excellent development team in the USHL. They do a lot of things really, really well. You know, we remember that their team at last year was absolutely loaded. They had a lot of guys drafted from there. Uh, you know, Brendan Brisson was drafted from there. Sean Farrell was drafted from there. Uh, you know, that team this year is going to have a lot more guys drafted with Matthew Coronado, Ryan Ufko, uh, Sam um, And then in the coming years, Adam Fantilli is going to be a name you want to know. He's going to be a top five pick. Where's he uh, going? I think uh, Adam Fantilli. He's not uh, not this season. He's not going to be a top five pick. I think he's oh, 2023. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I see. Yeah, yeah. He's a 2023 pick. Um, he's only 16 right now and he's the fifth leading scorer on that team. So, but he'll be a top five pick in 2023, uh, for sure. So count on that, but 
that's basically a, all, all is to say that's a very loaded hockey team with a lot of good hockey players. Um, and so I would have no qualms about taking, uh, you know, Sam Oskevich from, from that team there. Does the fact that there are so many good players, though, change how you look at those points in the USHL? I don't think so. Um, I think, you know, there's certainly maybe potential where if that's a really high scoring hockey team, then you're worried that uh, they're getting a lot of, you know, empty points, secondary assists, things like that. The habits that they learn, though, I think is what's important for me. Mm. Uh, get the opportunity to play around other very talented players, I think is helpful in their draft year, um, you know, relative to some other leagues where there may be huge talent gaps between the guys playing on the first and second line and the guys playing on the third and fourth line. I think you look at that Chicago Steel team and I mean, they're starting to build a dynasty over there. They were 41 and seven last year, I think 36 and 11 this year. Uh, really, really developing good hockey players. Plus, I trust the development program with some of the guys that we've seen come out of there in the last couple of years. All right. And then since we don't, you know, overload thing, players who uh, attend or are committed to my alma mater, if you want to spotlight any uh, University of North Carolina uh, men's hockey players, you know, feel free. I think if you go back and you look up the 0809 roster, you might find uh, me there on, in, in net. So, you know, maybe if that even still exists at some point, uh, I think I got to play a game or two. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, actually, you can see ice hockey got canceled there. But, you know, Max, going back to my Chicago Steel point, right? Owen Powers is a Chicago Steel alumnus. He is. You know, that's these true. Are, th- these are all guys that that Chicago has developed and um, does they do a really nice job. So. Where would draft analyst Prashanth draft goalie Prashanth? Oh, no, no, no. This would be undrafted. You'd be <laughs> signing me. Yeah, no, no, no. We'd have a contract after after the draft. You would not want to waste draft capital here. All right. All right. Fair enough. Um, I'm not going to go through each pick in the second round. Give me three names in the second round ranked between, I don't know, 30, 33, and 64 on the McKenzie list that you uh, wouldn't mind seeing the Red Wings target. Ideally, not all cr- clustered at the top. All right. So then I'll give you a defenseman at the top that I really, really like. Scott Morrow. He's uh, uh, in the U.S. high school system playing for St. Mary's. Uh, I think if there's any guy who gets drafted in the second round, or I should say any defenseman who gets drafted in the second round that has legit top four potential, it's Scott Morrow. I think he has all the tools. He's just going to need some time and development. Uh, he's already committed to University of North Dakota, which is, again, a great development school in the NCAA. So I think he'll learn a lot of great habits there. He's a guy that I absolutely uh, would love to see the Red Wings be able to take in with kind of their first uh, or second uh, second round pick. I think uh, a forward that would be very interesting um, to see would potentially be uh, Ayrton uh, Martino. So he's uh, in the USHL as well in Omaha. Um, I have heard him basically likened to an offensive dynamo. So there are still some, you know, defensive deficiencies to work out uh, here. But, you know, kind of taking a swing on talent there, I think would not be the worst thing in the world. The other guy you can consider would be uh, Proker Poltapov, who's down there at 62. Again, there's a very wide range of opinions on him. I think Corey had Poltapov at like 20 or 22 in his rankings, um, you know, plays with great pace, great energy. So if you're getting him down towards the end of the second or the early third, I think that's a heck of a pick. And then, you know, last but not least is Kiro uh, Kirsanov, who uh, again, another outstanding hockey player um, 
I think that Bob has him at 64 defensemen in the KHL. Kind of flew under the radar um, until the World Juniors, where he then sort of outshined Daniel Cheka, who was expected to kind of be the, the darling for the Russian team. And Kirsanov didn't look out of place in any situation, contributed at all all levels of the game. So again, being able to pick up a guy like him, you know, late second, early third is a great spot for Detroit. Yeah. All right. Any more thoughts on this? Uh, I'm sure we'll we'll be referencing back to it and talking about it a ton in the coming months. But before we we pivot off of this, any any final thoughts? No, I think uh, it'll be a really interesting draft. Uh, it'll be really interesting to see how this holds up. I think for what it's worth, um, everything that we talked about in the second round is accurate as I said Bob is in the first round. Last year's second round was his biggest miss of a second round, um, going back to as many of these as I could find. I think I go back to 2014. So his second and third rounds uh, missed on a lot of different guys. So it could be far more wide open uh, than we see listed here. Okay, good to know. All right, uh, today is April 19th. Uh, Any memories from April 19th through the years you can think of? I think uh, this was the day the franchise savior returned, if I remember correctly. (laughs) Is that how we're going to refer to him? I think that's how we should refer uh, to him. You are welcome to do that if that is how you would like to do it. But yes, it is uh, It is the day Steve Eisman became the Red Wings GM. Two-year anniversary. Wanted to get your thoughts two years in uh, on the Eisman tenure. Um, has the timeline changed from what you expected? I got some pushback. I did not expect to get pushback for saying that I thought the timeline had changed. I guess there are some people who think that they should have seen uh, all of this, this coming two years ago. Has the timeline changed in your mind for, for the Red Wings returning to contention? And what are kind of some uh, highs and lows of, of the Iserman era so far? I think the timeline is maybe pushed out maybe a year or two further than I was anticipating. And I think that's really signaled by the Anthony Mantha deal. And it will really be signaled uh, depending on what he chooses to do uh, this offseason if he you know decides to part with Tyler Bertuzzi and or uh, Jacob Vrana and or Philip Aronik or, you know, a number of other guys. Uh, I think that'll maybe really signal what direction the team's heading in. But I think it's maybe been pushed out a year or two. So now you're looking at probably 24, 25 as being kind of that realistic shot to get back into the playoffs. Um, but, you know, in, in terms of evaluating his tenure, I think it's gone exactly like someone who understands that this is going to be a long process. I need to be able to maintain a lot of options I need to maintain cap flexibility, and I need to to recognize when things are not going uh, as quickly as I thought they would and learn how to to kind of reset my timeline, uh, which he has done beautifully thus far. I think he's done an outstanding job in the first two years. Yeah, I mean, when when we talk about kind of highs and lows of it, um, I think the lows are pretty manageable lows. I mean, a couple of trades here that, that I think you can point to and say, not crazy value. We'll see what comes of the John Merrill deal. That one stands out. Um, the Alec Regula deal for Brendan Pellini certainly understood the the idea at the time, but uh, it could very well be that Alec Regula ends up playing more NHL games than than Brendan Perlini um, did for the Red Wings. That, that's certainly possible. So, but to me, when those are, are the the most questionable moves, uh, that does signal a, a, a pretty successful two years. Yeah, I mean, coming into this season and really going up to the trade deadline, you might have argued that the most questionable move was either the Alec Regula deal or even the Adam Ernie deal, right? Because mm. I think a lot of people were a little skeptical giving up, a four, I think it was a fourth round pick for Adam Ernie, who then didn't really have that great of a 1920 season until now all of a sudden he is the goal scorer who cannot be stopped. 
mm-hmm. uh, until Chicago finally snapped his uh, his eight game point streak. But yeah, I mean the the lows are are not really that low. I mean, sure you can argue that uh, John Merrill should have netted more value. I certainly believe so. I think that's going to be Eiserman's worst move of his tenure. Um, you know, maybe Alec Regula, uh, Chicago Steel alumnus. Let me just throw that in there. Uh, finds a way to. Uh, maybe make Eisman regret dealing him for Perlini, but it with the information you had at the time, not really a deal you can argue against. So uh, overall, he's done a good job of minimizing the damage that his moves can actually cause, which I think is is really really key here. To me, I think the the best moves, um, the Andreas Athanasiu one, really comes to mind. I think you get two second round picks for a guy who, who the Oilers then um, non tendered in the off season. Um, I think you can honestly probably look at the Adam Ernie trade is starting to get to be one of the better. I mean, to, to get the, your current leading goal scorer for a fourth round pick, he's age 25. That, that move might be in the top five so far. Um, it hasn't been a ton of splash, I guess you would say. I mean, it, I think the Mantha trade was super splashy, super bold. Um, to me, I, I think that is kind of like good value more than like unreal in, in the Athanasiu sense. But certainly there were enough people in the hockey media who disagree with me about that. So I could be off base on, on that front. Yeah, I mean, I, right or wrong, I think what you're seeing, though, is the willingness to make the moves to reset uh, to basically fit his timeline that he envisions. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Athanasiu, I think at the time, a lot of people lamented the fact that he only got two seconds, right? Um, and that's partly because we never knew that COVID was going to shut everything down. Yes. And that Athanasia would then very much struggle in Edmonton to to really adapt to playing on Connor McDavid's wing. Um, and then we didn't realize Edmonton wouldn't uh, actually keep him and qualify him. So, you know, it was uh, that that deal ends up looking bad initially and then becoming better in hindsight. And, you know, the Mantha deal right now, I think, looks great. Uh, initially and may end up looking a little worse in hindsight, but it's still going to end up being a win because he made a move that fit his timeline. And I think that willingness is what's going to allow him to ultimately turn this team into a successful team. It'll be interesting. I mean, I, I think you have to, at some, you have to maintain a uh, willingness to look back and evaluate trades at the time they were evaluated. And that's a good point about Athens. At, at the time of the trade, I didn't think it was a low price, but I thought it was more of like a fair price. Um, and and so maybe I should remember that a little bit as well as we talk about that as one of his better moves. Um, I, I think that's a very good point. Yeah, I mean, that's honestly just a move that aged better. You know, the, yep. the Robbie Fabry deal looked great oh, at the time. How do we, oh, that's, better, that's right? the one. Never mind. Right? That's, I mean, the that, that's, yeah. that's the other deal that you have to think about as maybe being the best deal is. He's been Jacob hurt. De- I just forgot about him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Jacob De La Rose isn't even on the St. Louis Blues anymore. I think he's on the taxi squad right now. Uh, you know, so that's probably the the best move hands down. But uh, either way, he's made a number of successful moves that fit his timeline. He's got the right core, uh, right core age of players, I should say. He's got enormous amounts of cap flexibility, $50 million this offseason, $70 million the year after. Uh, he's got 11 picks in the first five rounds this year. He's working his way to 11 picks in five rounds next year. I think you have to like all of the aspects that he's been able to tackle to give himself the best opportunity to build a contender. I mean, I, I it's kind of a joke where it's like you're basically throwing a Harvey Dent quote in here. You have to make your own luck. 
And so Eiserman is making his own luck by giving himself as many pinballs in the draft, allowing himself to have that cap flexibility so he can take advantage of that luck and not locking himself into any sort of bad deals. I mean, arguably the worst deal, maybe we can say this now, is the Valtteri Filppula signing. I mm. mean, Filppula has been sitting on the taxi squad this year, and even that's not that bad of a deal. Like, it, it was two years, $3 million a year, and it's not going to end up being the end of the world uh, as, you know, the taxi squad allowed that to to, to work out. So I also maintain their center yeah. depth without Philpo last year would have been an unmitigated disaster. And he was serviceable last season. Yeah. And so that's the thing is like as it transitioned into this season, maybe the second year was too long. But again, you're starting your his bad moves don't hurt the team long term. I think that's the difference right now between what we saw previously. And yes, they had a different direction previously, but the Justin Abdelkader deal is going to hurt the Red Wings through 2026. That's a deal that's going to span more than a decade in terms of the amount of problems that's going to cause for the Red Wings. You know, the Stephen Weiss deal is only just ending this year. Like those are the bads that continue to hurt Franz Nielsen's deal. Technically, he's still got another year next year. That's a deal, at, and that's at $5.25 million. So he's done a nice job of making sure his mistakes aren't lasting mistakes, which I think is the, the key uh, to being able to execute a successful rebuild. All right. Anything else today uh, before we let everybody go and, and wrap up? No, I think that's enough, uh, enough of the uh, Chicago Steel plugs for me. All right. That sounds good then. All right. Uh, Red Wings are going to play the Stars uh, four straight games. You will will be here to recap the first two of them on Wednesday, get you set for the second two, and uh, maybe by then we'll be a little bit closer to talking uh, a Joe Valeno potential debut. <laughs>